So good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. Thank you very much for uh, coming to this uh, a live event, uh, obviously, because you're all here, for the Art of Future Warfare Project. Uh, this one entitled, How to Write and Fight World War III. Uh, this morning we have a great panel uh, for you who will uh, engage in a discussion about how art and creativity can illuminate thinking about international security uh, and armed conflict. Uh, in this particular case, we're going to be talking about how fiction writers uh, can help push the imaginative boundaries for what worldwide conflict in the near future might look like. Uh, my name is Dan Chu. I am the Deputy Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center here on International Security. Uh, we proudly host uh, both this uh, event, uh, this initiative, and this project uh, with its director, August Cole, who will be joining us on the uh, panel today. Uh, I'm recently arrived here at the Atlantic Council from serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy in the Pentagon. And so I can tell you that I really believe that this is a very important project for us to be undertaking uh, here at the Council, and I think it's really going to contribute uh, to the discussion. In Washington, we often talk about the challenges of international security, and inside the Beltway in particular, we have a shared mindset of generally accepted uh, and traditional parameters or assumptions about what the future uh, of international security is going to look like. But time and time again, and you just have to look at the news and watch the news feed out front to know that we end up getting surprised over and over about exactly how that security uh, context can manifest itself. Even worse, I can tell you, uh, even through concerted efforts in places like the Pentagon where we should be best on this, it is very, very difficult to get people to think uh, differently. Uh, I have personally uh, overseen specific efforts to try and push people to think about the future differently, think about military operations differently, think about national security differently. And I can tell you with regret uh, and a little bit of, and a lot of disappointment, uh, that we tend to get uh, versions of the future that, I guess not surprisingly, look a lot like today. Uh, simply extrapolations of today out into the future, usually with bigger, shinier toys, but not really any big differences uh, in terms of what that future looks like. As a result, what happens is we plan to fight future wars in the same way we plan to fight current or past wars, and as a result, we continue buying the same types of force structure, we continue for training for the same types of missions, and we continue perpetuating the same kinds of doctrines for the futures that we think have served us well to date, but we don't know how they've served us in the future. Having faced those kinds of obstacles in the Pentagon, I can tell you that we need new voices, we need new thoughts, we need new imagination uh, to enter into this discussion. And that's where this effort led by August and this particular panel I think you will find uh, will really push us uh, today. So this is the reason that the Atlantic Council launched the Art of Future Warfare project, to not only to uh, come up with some of the uh, great products you see outside in terms of the visual arts, uh, and of course the book that you're gonna hear a lot about in this particular panel, but in particular to engage a broader community uh, of people with different mindsets, in particular creative people uh, and working artists to think about how the future could unfold uh, across this century, and how the dynamics might shape and animate international security, aren't conflict, and if we're smart about it, our strategic planning. More specifically, it is the mission of this project to cultivate a community of interest in works and ideas arising from the intersection of creativity and expectations about emerging antagonists, disruptive technologies, and novel warfighting uh, concepts. Uh, it is my strong hope that this community of interest will be a lasting one that can help engage and interact with the folks uh, in DC, inside the Pentagon, inside government, uh, who need to think about these things uh, every day. 
So today is an exciting day, not only because I finally get to introduce an Art of Future Warfare uh, event, which uh, I have been eager to do for some time, but also because uh, project director August Cole uh, has produced with uh, Peter Singer, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, a remarkable work of fiction, which I'm sure you've all heard about, uh, you've probably all already bought, uh, and you're certainly going to hear more about, called Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. Uh, it is not only a great book, it's making summer reading lists uh, all over the place, uh, but it's really something uh, that exemplifies what this particular project can accomplish. Uh, so in addition to making summer reading, uh, it's getting kudos from places like the CNO's office, uh, Chief of Naval Operations called it thoughtful, strategic, and relevant, uh, and beyond the beltway getting people uh, of the likes of D.B. Weiss, the writer of HBO's Game of Thrones, who said, Quote, Ghost Fleet is a thrilling trip through a terrifying, plausible tomorrow. Uh, and we're excited to share this moment uh, with August uh, and Peter. Uh, I'll add to that just from my casual perusal uh, of the internet and social media. Uh, Wall Street Journal is now opining about how Peter and August uh, are really getting the Pentagon to think hard about new threats. Uh, and Asian media is likewise wondering what this book means uh, for what the US government is really doing uh, behind the scenes. That's the sign of true impact uh, of even this kind of creative uh, endeavor. So. Uh, I mentioned already, and I, I'm sure you noticed on your way in, uh, the art that we have uh, displayed around here, and I think August will tell you a little bit more about that when he speaks. Uh, the visual arts are essential to understanding future of warfare. I think, as you can imagine, uh, really capturing people by having this kind of visual uh, representation of what the future might hold can really spark uh, the imagination. I'll mention one thing uh, at a previous event that uh, I attended uh, with August. I know there were some people uh, who are part of the project who wondered some sometimes whether they're having impact uh, on decision makers or policy makers or analysts uh, at all. And I think this visual art is a great example uh, of how they actually absolutely do. When these sorts of things capture people's imagination and get them thinking about things that they hadn't before, that's absolutely the kind of impact uh, that the art of future warfare is, is looking uh, to create. So uh, the art that you see out there is, in effect, propaganda from the next world war. It's created and commissioned by illustrators and artists, uh, as well as crowdsourced entries from the Art of Future Warfare project, another great methodology that the project uh, is using. So please take uh, a moment to take a look at those uh, around the lobby uh, on your way uh, out uh, as well. So enough from me. Uh, before we bring the panel up here, let me briefly introduce uh, everyone properly. Um, and so you can uh, be sure to engage them as they speak to you here uh, today. As I've mentioned multiple times now, August Cole is the director of the Art of Future Warfare Project. August is a writer, analyst, and consultant specializing in national security issue, a great partner here uh, at the Atlantic Council. Uh, he is a former defense industry reporter for the Wall Street Journal uh, and MarketWatch.com. Uh, Peter Singer, as I've also mentioned before, is a strategist and senior fellow at the New American Foundation. He is also the founder of Neo-Luddite uh, Technology, I love that name, a technology advisory firm, and has also authored multiple award-winning books while also serving as a contributor, contributing editor at Popular Science. Uh, when I was in the Pentagon, I can tell you as well, Peter was one of the most well-read uh, on, in particular, tech uh, and future trends and was always the subject of great uh, discussion there. 
Kathleen McInnes, a longtime friend of mine, a co-conspirator in the Pentagon, as we tried very hard to get the Pentagon to think a little bit differently about the, the future, is now a non-resident senior fellow here at the Brent Scowcroft Center. We're very proud, proud to have her here. Uh, and she is also an international security analyst for the Congressional uh, Research Service over on the Hill, where she writes on US defense policy uh, and strategy issue. Uh, and very importantly, she founded the Art of War blog on uh, War of the Rocks, our media partner for this uh, project. Commander Mark Seip is in the U.S. Navy uh, and is a senior fellow here at the uh, Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Uh, it's been great uh, working with uh, Mark uh, over the past year. He is a career E-2 Hawkeye aviator, has the cool model in his office to prove it, uh, who has most recently commanded uh, VAW-123 screw tops uh, based out of Norfolk, uh, Virginia, uh, and deployed aboard the USS Enterprise for the ship's final deployment. Uh, in 2012, uh, has been a great contributor bringing the military perspective uh, here to the Scowcroft Center uh, as well. And finally, I've mentioned War on the Rocks, I think, a bunch of times. Uh, it's hard not to in this particular uh, context, and we're very fortunate uh, today guiding our uh, conversation will be the CEO uh, and editor-in-chief of our project's media partner, War on the Rocks, Ryan Evans. Uh, welcome, Ryan. Ryan also works part-time as a research analyst uh, at my old stomping grounds, the Center for Naval Analyses in the Center for Strategic Studies. Uh, and he also deploy, has deployed in the past to Helmand Province in Afghanistan. Uh, as a social scientist. Uh, I think you all know War on the Rocks, uh, has, in addition to being a great media partner for us, uh, has really made a big splash on the scene and really uh, taken over the space of discussing these types uh, of issues. So we're really excited to have uh, Ryan here with us. So I expect in this session you're going to hear some interesting perspectives, other than mine, in about a second, uh, that I doubt you'll find elsewhere. Uh, I'm looking forward to how this discussion will really uh, push the boundaries of how we think about the future uh, of warfare. And now, as I invite the panel uh, on stage. Uh, I will hand it over to Ryan and everyone please uh, help welcome uh, the panel for this session on writing and fighting World War III. Thanks for, uh, I want to thank the Atlantic Council for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I have the easiest job on stage. Uh, I'm an academic, so I know how to ask questions that sound smart about things I know nothing about. That's really all I'm going to be doing today um, with this panel, some of whom I've known for quite a while. Um, this is a really great uh, thing for me to be involved in because at War in the Rocks, as Daniel mentioned, we've had this partnership with the Art of Future Warfare Project at the Atlantic Council with the Art of War blog that Kathleen stood up uh, at War on the Rocks. And so this, this is uh, just a very fitting, uh, fitting group to have. And so I'm not going to occupy your time too much, but I do encourage you to check out the Art of uh, War blog. You'll see a lot of stuff, and the Art of Future Warfare webpage, where you'll see a lot more along these lines about how fiction and the creative arts more generally actually are, are genuinely helpful in envisioning how future wars might very well be fought. And so I just want to turn it over to August get us started. Well, great. Thank you, everyone, for coming and for uh, taking the time on a hot day to join us here for a discussion about a novel, uh, not a white paper report, not a nonfiction product of an of a, uh, official department, but a book that is being read in a day or less. You can't say that about a lot of long white papers, even. And people are enjoying it. And I think that's one of the values of one of the reasons why we chose to uh, 
approach this question of the future of the Pacific, the future of American foreign policy, China's future with the US through fiction. There's so many different facets that you can explore in different ways, yet capture people through narrative, through characters, importantly, that we've seen so far having a pretty, uh, pretty immediate impact. I'll also speak to the, the art quickly out front. You know, the art of future warfare is, as Dan said, trying to create larger communities of interest around national security questions with new voices, you know, the, the people who may not belong ordinarily in a strategy meeting or a, a planning session. And these posters represent the very sort of ethos of the project in doing so. We have wonderful illustrators uh, and professional artists, as well as crowdsourced uh, art that you will see throughout the, the lobby and on stage here on either side that get at some of the core issues today but also really speak to the way we would be feeling, the things that government want us to be thinking in a next, uh, in a next uh, kind of great conflict. And so the, the uh, poster you see right here, for example, is, a, is a, a Chinese propaganda poster from the next world war that would be in occupied US territory. And this is something that speaks, I think, to the larger concern that many of us feel today about surveillance. And it really walks that forward again to what that might mean in a future context. So I'll maybe have Pete say a couple things about the book, too, and then we can uh, begin the discussion. Sure. Well, first, uh, thank you to the council for hosting us. This has been a really great, I would say, um, partnership and collaboration in, in so many different ways on a personal level, but also on an organizational level. The um, book, in many ways, is also that kind of collaboration. It's a um, collaboration between the world of nonfiction and fiction, or a smash up. It's a novel uh, that explores something that obviously hasn't yet happened and hopefully will never happen, what a future great power war might look like. Uh, it's a techno thriller and um, many people have made you know, parallels and it's been very kind of them to akin uh, to books like you know, Tom Clancy's uh, uh, Red Storm Rising or Sir John Hackett's Third World War, how back in the last great power conflict um, that fortunately never turned hot. People both within the fiction world and also with nonfiction backgrounds explored the what if. For us, we tried to play with that and create something that's engaging, entertaining, fun to read, but also what's different is to use that package to tell a nonfiction story. So it is a novel, but with over 400 endnotes documenting how every single technology, no matter how science fiction seeming, every single trend, even certain things that the characters say are all drawn from the real world. And through that, it allows you to um, both understand certain what ifs, uh, both that would play out potentially in a, in a great power conflict, but also just that will play out in the real world looming for us, um, even if that conflict doesn't come to bear. And um, that's been uh, very, um, it was a fun exercise, but we also are learning that um, it can be a valuable exercise. It's laid out something that we're calling useful fiction. And the utility of the fiction has been everything from it allows you to explore these what ifs. It allows you to tell certain um, human stories and themes in a way that's hard to in nonfiction. Um, potentially, it serves as a warning of certain pathways ahead. There's a very interesting parallel to um, Arthur Conan Doyle's Danger, which was a similar story right before World War I uh, that warned about crazy new technologies like the submarine and how they might be used in war. And what's fascinating to be, you know, great to have um, uh, folks on stage with us. What's fascinating back then is the uh, British Admiralty went public to mock Arthur Conan Doyle for the crazy idea that submarines would be used this way. Um, but also, uh, fiction is um, 
often read more widely, as uh, August put it. Um, you can find people who might not be willing to dig into that um, think tank edited volume, I say that, you know, <laughs> coming from think tank land, that will engage with a novel. And uh, they'll walk away from that reading, uh, hopefully from Ghost Fleet, understanding uh, certain key issues and trends that are playing out. And hopefully, instead of it being, you know, we've been very clear, it's a work of predict, it's a work of fiction, not prediction. That's the opening line of it. It is based on real world trends and technologies, but it is not a prediction. But hopefully it can be something that maybe ends up being preventative by identifying certain issues, trends, even mistakes that we're making right now. It helps us to avoid those from happening so that the scenario actually doesn't come to bear. Kathleen? Oh, thank you so much for having me here and for inviting me to participate in what I think is a really important conversation for the future of our, our community, national security, statecraft, and so on and so forth. I should state at the outset that I am here in my personal capacity. I'm not uh, representing the views of the Congressional Research Service or the U.S. government. Um, I'm, I'm here on my own. Um, representing my own views, and, and I am honored to be here because it is an incredibly important discussion, I think, about what the arts can tell us about strategy and statecraft. I mean, as, as Dan pointed out earlier, we're, we're grappling with an increasingly complex and interdependent world, you know, globalization, climate change, urbanization, um, population migration, resource scarcity. All of these are trends that are intersecting with the uh, reemergence of geopolitics on the one hand, um, and you know, the erosion of what we've known as a sovereign state on the other. So we're, we're dealing with this incredibly complex world. How do we grapple with this? How do we, how do we think about these problems? How, how do we advance U.S. and global security in a world plagued by wicked problems and unintended consequences? And we, as, as Dan mentioned earlier, we've, we hunger for creativity and intellectual agility in our national security leaders um, and our military leaders. But how do we actually cultivate that kind of thinking? that creative lateral thinking. And crucially, how do we communicate you know, how we're thinking about these problems and what we think we should be doing about them? How do we com communicate that to our publics in a way that resonates? And I'd submit to you that uh, fiction, literature, and the arts are a critical, often overlooked vehicle for exactly that, the creative contemplation of matters of statecraft and national security. It was a couple years ago um, with the, the field manual uh, 3-24 counterinsurgency that was put together by the Army and Marine Corps. Um, it, basically, it's the Army and Marine Corps how-to guide to doing counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular. And it, as that process uh, unfolded and as the actual document was produced, and it has a lot of critics, um, it has a lot of its proponents. Um, there's proponents of other, and uh, distractors on whether or not we should be doing counterinsurgency at all. But one of the things that, I, um, you know, outside of that debate, one of the interesting things about that manual was that it actually posed these, you know, these, these intellectual puzzles, these constructs, like the more you secure your environment, the, the less safe you can be when you're operating in a local uh, tactical environment. It, it was this way, instead of having a tactical, you know, a checklist of, you know, this is what we need to do in these particular operations, and this is the logic flow for how you do X, Y, or Z in, in these environments, it was this basically Army Marine Corps answer to a Zen Cohen, right? Like um, how it, this, this non-logical, re really intuitive way to sort of creatively grapple with the, the local environment and, and inspire 
uh, uh, leaders talk to operators to think about their unique circumstances in their unique environments in their in unique ways. This is no accident. You know, the, the point of a Zen koan is to inspire a deeper, non-logical level of contemplation. But we haven't always used koans to, to uh, access that parts of our psyche and that way of thinking about things. Um, Kieran Armstrong, who is a theological and religious scholar, uh, who wrote a book that I, I just love. It's called the Sh A Short History of Myth. She argues that ever since we were cavemen sitting, you know, sitting around campfires, you know, we have been using stories and myths as ways to communicate truth to each other, to ways to communicate meaning. Um, myths were not a you know, expression of religious belief, per se. Rather, they were an imaginative, non-logical attempt to understand who we are and how we fit in the world. Now, fast forward several thousand millennia, you get to the ancient Greeks, who also had two very different, equally important ways of looking at the world, mythos and logos. Uh, logos uh, reason is, is you know, how it's the, you know, the, where we get the word logic from. It's about scientific understanding of our world. It's about reductionism. It's about problem solving. It's about um, iterating and improving. It's, it's, about the, it's the part of our mind that solves our problems and finds ways to master our environment. But mythos, by contrast, is that squishy kind of knowledge that helps us understand the meaning of our lives and gives us context. It contextualizes our griefs and triumphs and all the other uh, aspects of the human condition. And as Karen Armstrong writes, mythos helps people live effectively in our confusing world through a different way to logos. Myths have told stories about the gods, but they're really focused on the more elusive, puzzling, and tragic aspects of the human predicament that lay outside of logos. Today. I would argue great art serves that purpose. And it turns out that there's a reason that we gravitate towards creative works. We've been programmed since our caveman days to use stories and myths as tools to understand and contemplate and interpret our circumstances in a creative and unbound way. And in our field, those circumstances happen to be national security and statecraft. Have we gotten the balance between mythos and logos as we think about these problems, right? I think there's a growing recognition among the strategic scholars that um, we might not have gotten that balance right. Uh, Christopher Coger, in his recently published book, um, Men at War, explores works of great fiction and what they tell us about the human condition in conflict. He looks at uh, the Iliad, Catch-22, in order to help expose us to those not necessarily logical but highly important truths. Charles Hill, a Yale professor and former State Department diplomat, in his work, Grand Strategies, uh, Literature, Statecraft, and World Order, argues that literature and art are the necessary intellectual playgrounds of statesmen. He goes on to explore works like Emma, Jane Austen's Emma, and uh, The Tale of Two Cities by Dickens, and discerning the respective themes and what they can tell us about statecraft. Um, Emma, for example, illustrates the necessity of reliable intelligence, and Dickens' tale uh, is, is an um, a reflection on modern state terror. Hill makes an important point. Only literature is methodologically unbound. Only, only literature gives us the space to think about things laterally without any particular logic flow imposed. And a field like national security policy, which is alternately dominated, I would argue, by the behavioral sciences, technical arcana, and punditry, those methodologically unbound spaces are as important as they're probably underappreciated. And here the Greeks provide us with another lesson. It's implied. Namely, when we prioritize myth, uh, logos at the expense of mythos, are we actually limiting the way we think about the world and how we think about these problems? Again, have, have we as a community really gotten that balance right? So fiction and the arts can serve as an important vehicle to creatively contemplate national security matters. But as I think 
Dan pointed out earlier, uh, the arts are also a powerful tool for communicating complex ideas to a, a broad audience. You know, take, uh, take for example, this is maybe not high art, but um, the James Franco and Seth Rogen movie, you know, the, uh, the interview, which came out last year. And it was crass jokes, <laughs> slapstick humor, but actually buried within, the, within the, uh, the dialogue were some pretty important points about you know, the brutality of the North Korean regime. And, and points that an audience that uh, it's not reading UN reports or reading uh, accounts from uh, the gulags, in North Korea, they, that, that audience wouldn't necessarily seek out and find. So it was a way of communicating these points and, and, and illuminating the, you know, some of the broader, uh, bigger questions about what's happening in our world to an audience that might not necessarily um, <clears throat> know they're looking for it. And it can create a hunger for more information. So in conclusion, I mean, uh, uh, Pete and August, I think it's absolutely incredible what you guys have done. I mean, pr producing a work of fiction is an incredibly hard and um, uh, uh, endeavor and I absolutely congratulate you and I also congratulate you for putting together something that that bridges that gap between strategy and statecraft and policy and, and helps us understand uh, some of these dynamics about the future of warfare and our technological dependencies and, and those sorts of things helps us understand them in an accessible way uh, so congratulations I think this is an incredibly important contri uh, contribution to our field and I think I, I really hope that this is the beginning of a, a number of more conversations about what the arts can tell us about statecraft and strategy that's great thanks Mark how about and again uh, to August and Peter the book is awesome uh, it's it's a great read. Um, my 19-year-old grabbed it as soon as I finished reading it. He's already halfway through it. Um, so again, congratulations to you both for uh, just a, a knockout book there at the beginning. Uh, as a Navy guy, and uh, I think Greg, you would agree with me, when you start reading it and like half the things get blown up and all hell's breaking loose, and you're like, it, it gets you angry, which is exactly the point of fiction is mm -hmm. to get get an emotional response. Uh, and especially as a carrier guy, I won't totally ruin the surprise, but. Uh, Carriers don't seem to do well in this book, and, and uh, we're going we're to talk about that afterwards. Um, so, you know, Kathleen and Dan both pointed out in their, in, in their opening remarks that what we're struggling here with is what I call circular rut mentality right now in strategic thought. Um, we, in general, uh, I'm, I'm both an operator, but I also, again, had done a year here as a, a fellow on the Atlantic Council. Um, and in my next job that I'm going to for the Navy, again, it's more strategic thought. And, and what we're seeing here is a need to break out of the mold, a need to try to think of new ways, not just of new ways of technology, but new ways of employing the technology, new ways of, frankly, just employing ourselves. Um, and that's kind of what I want to hammer on uh, real quickly. Is, and I talked to Peter before uh, we got into the room here. Is what I took away from the book was that he, he used the word techno thriller. And that is absolutely true, and, and I absolutely defer to Peter because his knowledge of techno is way above mine. But at the same time, what I really appreciate about this book was that when he used innovation, which has been thrown around a lot, um, Ciro Lopez wrote for War on the Rocks about innovation. Um, innovation in this book, again, trying not to ruin the surprise here, really relies on the people and the operators that are using it, not the, use, not the technology itself, if that makes sense. And that is what I think is going to be the key. You know, Chairman Dempsey just released his national military strategy uh, on the backside of the national um, security strategy. And in there, his number one imperative for energizing and, and refocusing the entire military enterprise is on our people, is on the operators, is on our training and the things that we can do, the way we can either develop the new technology, which would be great, or more importantly, how to use it in new ways. And what Peter and Augs have done in this book is shown us one uh, vignette, if you want to call it that one, obviously a very large scale vignette, 
of how the different operators on both sides, frankly, on both the Chinese and the U.S. side, um, use new ways of thinking to break out of the molds and that kind of stuff. That is kind of what I would hope um, folks, especially in the military, uh, especially the active duty guys still, and certainly our senior leaders as they read this, maybe take a chance and think about that. Um, I'm under the impression that Vice Admiral Wisecup, who is uh, one of the deans up at the Naval War College, is uh, asking that people read this book, his fellows read this book for just that very reason. That those of us in the mid to slowly getting up to the senior ranks in the military take an opportunity to go, you know what? Maybe the way we thought about employing our weapons or employing our people, more importantly, uh, maybe it needs to change. And this book, it does a great job because these two gentlemen aren't bounded by white papers and think tank novels and all this other kind of stuff. They can write literally whatever they want. Um, and they have, but they've done it in such a way that it's grounded. And that's, again, why I got the emotional response I did, because it's grounded in just enough uh, real facts with all the endnotes to support it that you go, this is not a hard step to see where this might lead to if we don't do something to change the way we employ ourselves, uh, either in the military or even on the political side. And that was one thing, by the way. Um, I looked at Red Storm Rising last night just to kind of compare Red Storm Rising, what Tom didn't do was he didn't really hit on the political underpinnings of the US at that time. It was just assumed that we had F-15s and A-10s and all that kind of good stuff. What you guys did was, in the first part of the book, was really take the time to lay out how the political underpinnings set up for the inevitable conflict uh, and some of the shortcomings that have to be overcome by the protagonists. And I thought that was awesome. That was definitely something that, um, like I said, was not done in the book 30 years ago. So again, kudos to you guys. Uh, again, my son Aaron's, he's, he's ripping it up right now, so congratulations. Thank you. Great. Well, I'm going to ask a couple questions so we can have a nice discussion, and then we'll turn it over to uh, the audience. Uh, first, I want to ask a broad question about everyone's influences. Um, Mark just made a really important point, is that th this book is starting to make people rethink how we think about our weapons and people and legacy systems and, and all that. Um, and usually countries learn that through defeat. Um, so Peter Parrott wrote a great book, it's very short, and a lot of people in this room probably know it, called The Cognitive Challenge of War. It's about Prussia's defeat by France in 1806 and how that changed uh, Prussian society and how that changed art and culture and vice versa. Uh, and it just reminded me a lot, uh, very different kinds of books, but what, what were your big influences in writing this book or, and just broader as, as defense thinkers and writers? And you know, same, same question goes for uh, Kathleen and Mark. I'll lead off with that, and I think I have a pretty diverse set of influences. I mean, I read uh, you know, Red Storm Rising, and Pete and I have this shared experience of, of being just so captivated by that book when it came out that during the summer, you know, we literally hunkered down inside to read that and rather than go outside and horse around. And that was something that when we came together to work on the book after knowing each other for many years, we discovered that we had this kind of mutual reading list, uh, and there are some differences, but I was very influenced by writers like William Gibson, uh, and more recently, Stephen Pressfield, as someone who can think about the future of war, but also the craft of writing, because I think that's a really important aspect of this, too. But what I, what I like about uh, a writer, for example, like William Gibson, is that they can create a very sort of pathfinding vision of the future that's not necessarily a rosy one, that is actually almost seems more real and gritty, and I think that's something that we tried to portray in the book that the world you want to come true may not be the one you get. And in fact, you may not even be the one who gets to decide what that world is like. Um, you know, in the fiction realm, Norman Mailer, those, those sorts of writers who I really commend people to read for character development and, 
and uh, you know you can't do anything better than I think spend time reading fiction, something that Admiral Stavridis, who's now at Tufts, has talked about repeatedly. And I think it's a message that really can be driven home. But it's very hard to carve out time for that in our day-to-day -day lives, but it's ex exceedingly worthwhile. You know, we're, we're products of this world, the world of DC policy wonkdom, but then also you know uh, the popular culture around us, and um, and as August mentioned, you know even going back to your childhood. So the the endnotes illustrate those influences. They're not just to, to document where we got the data from, to also avoid anyone um, saying that we're revealing classified information. No, it's already out there. Uh, and so you can see the influences there and everything from uh, you know, um, the US military and Chinese uh, military documents to NDU reports, NDU both for the US and China, to um, the latest in uh, discussions in places like a war on the rocks, or you know, I work at Popular Science, um, to uh, you know, um, just sort of the, those are the the, the nonfiction influences of setting up the world. Let's pull from our, our sources that we have out there, but then you also have the fiction side and the the choice of the structure of the book reflects both these influences, but also marries the fiction and the nonfiction. So, you know, as August um, put it, one is a red storm rising, uh, a Clancy. Another one um, for me is Herman Wouk's uh, Winds of War, War and Remembrance, which arguably, um, I think, again, shows the power of fiction. I I'm a World War II history buff. Uh, those books arguably do a better job of telling the story of World War II than most um, World War II nonfiction books um, and, and hitting these core human themes and experiences. Another illustration would be um, World War Z, which is about zombies, but actually has been used by the Pentagon for explaining why bureaucracies don't deal well with the unexpected. But what all of these share is a choice that was a difficult one as writers of rather than following a single character along a single journey, they um, follow multiple characters in multiple locations, many of whom never meet. That links back both these are the books that we enjoy, but it links back to a nonfiction side is that we're illustrating how a war between great powers in the 21st century would be different than the conflicts of today that we've grown used to that we once thought were you know abnormal or the new normal for us the the iraqs the afghanistans and part of that would be it would be a multi-domain fight it would be something that would involve not just battles on land but battles in the air at sea the u.s navy hasn't fought a um a peer uh really we're on the 70th year anniversary of the last time we've seen those kind of battles um, but it would also involve fighting in two new places that were unimaginable 70 years ago in space and cyberspace. So the structure, which is you know, both taken from that fictional influence, also allows us to explore what would this kind of fight be like? How would it be different? And again, it, I think one of the reasons why the book is resonating is that it um, is unfortunately connecting to real world issues that are playing out whether it's um, the discussions of cybersecurity and what a cyber war might look like. Well, the OPM breach uh, recently brought that to bear. If, um, you know, that was not a theft of intellectual property. That was, in espionage terms, preparing the battlefield. 
It was basically setting up yourself in case there is a war. Um, two, we've seen uh, uh, two weeks ago, the US announced that we were going to spend $5 billion on um, space uh, um, operations, equipping for it, creating a center just to be uh, coordinating against Chinese and Russian moves in space. So we explore that to um, one of the, the, I would say, you know, we have a, a mixed um, reaction to it as writers was um, this trend of, uh, essentially I would argue a brewing Cold War of the 21st century, um, where you know, 18 months ago we wrote the opening scene of the book, which is of a US Navy P-8 being angrily ordered away by radio by a Chinese military officer. We wrote that fictional scene 18 months ago. It happened in reality a month ago. So as a writer, you have a mixed reaction. On one hand, your fiction is, is coming true. On the other hand, it's the opening chapter of a book about World War III. So the point is, um, you know, we can see a lot of connections here, but the structure, the influences reflect that too. Um, in terms of influences, I mean, I guess for me, sort of Tom Clancy growing up, um, William Gibson, John Scalzi, I think, is uh, pretty good. Um, Old Man's War, Forever War, those are uh, interesting. Um, but what I've actually been uh, finding pretty interesting to do as well is, is not just looking at um, political thrillers or you know, uh, these science fiction thrillers, but rather taking the, you know, works that you wouldn't necessarily associate with you know, strategy or statecraft and, and thinking, you know, thinking about them as metaphors, taking the step back and thinking more broadly about what these things imply as, you know, um, Charles Hill's example with, you know, taking a look at Emma, what does that tell you about intelligence and intelligence failures and how people react to intelligence failures? And so, so taking that approach, I, I've been finding really interesting to do these days. Uh, for me, I would say my influences um, on the nonfiction side, uh, I, I read a fair amount of biographies. I, I gravitate towards people like McCullough's uh, look at uh, Harry Truman, uh, Theodore Rex in the series on Teddy Roosevelt. I look at uh, leaders in our past who didn't accept the way things were and wanted to make positive change. And if that may, meant being disruptive and breaking out of the cycle, then so be it. Uh, and I find that I tend to gravitate towards those for fiction. Uh, Red Storm Rising, of course, I still remember reading that again when, you know, as my son now is reading yours, I remember being his age reading Red Storm Rising um, and just being blown away by it. Warren Remembrance is a great one. Uh, I have both of those as well. Um, the one that's more recent, I think, uh, and I know that he, I, th I believe he's come as uh, George Martin, George R. R. Martin, um, the, of course, Game of Thrones uh, that people know, uh, the Song of Fire and Ice series. Um, What's interesting about that one, and as a parallel to what I talked about later about the emphasis on the people and not the technology, is for those of you who've read that series, of course, you're like, oh, this is all about dragons and wizards and magic and all this stuff. And actually, again, if you actually read the books thoroughly, um, I actually haven't watched the shows. I read the books. I'm one of those snobs. Um, so the, the books actually spend 99% of their time on the people on, again, the relationships, on the power plays, on the struggles between the different clans, uh, and all that other stuff that you might have found in like a Terry Brooks series for the Shannara books, for those of you who are old enough to remember those, that doesn't exist here. Um, the, the magic and the, the technology of George's books are secondary to what the characters do inside those books to each other and how the relationships work out. Can I build on a couple of these really good points? So, so first is, um, 
you know, again, the, the scenario of the book is looking at something that we thought was in our historic rearview mirror, a, a great power conflict, and unfortunately is, is now again thinkable for too many. But the lessons of, of this discussion apply over to even the conflicts of today. So if we're looking at the battle uh, against an ISIS, mm -hmm. it's as much or more a battle of narrative then it is airstrikes. It actually is the explainer for how we can carry out more than 500 airstrikes but still feel like we're losing. And you know, that's where it may be something, you know, a Game of Thrones, which is about you know, Byzantine politics and shifting alliances to you know, a madman may be just as instructive as you know, an air power treatise. Um, another issue for us, you know, it's interesting, Gibson um, is a good, when we talk about the power of science fiction, Gibson, I think, is a great reminder um, and maybe a retort to a lot of the um, techno-optimistic RMA thinking out there. Uh, we've been really pleased by the parallels people have made to Gibson because Gibson's science fiction, um, someone kindly called it the first cyberpunk um, war novel. You know, you have the high technology in, in Gibson and, and in ours, but you still have the dirt the grit, the grime, you still have the people. Mm -hmm. I know, by the way, the technology doesn't always work the way you planned. And that reflects what's happened in conflict um, you know, in the last 10 years and I think in the future. Um, and so I think these are some of the values of it. The final strange thing for us is sometimes you know, it was the nonfiction that led in the, in the research process. So we, we met with the real world people who might fight in such a war. The, Navy fighter pilots, destroyer captains, um, Chinese generals, sometimes the unexpected who we do think will play a war that people aren't planning for, um, the role of Silicon Valley, um, anonymous hackers. Um, but the point was, you know, they helped influence the, the characters, the what ifs, but also what was strange is the fictional influences sometimes led of us. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a character that's um, basically a killer taking advantage of the, the, the conflict that's playing out. Um, that the nonfiction point of it is to explore how you can use low tech means in a world of overwhelming surveillance to still do what you, what you want. Um, but our influences were this mix of uh, John, St there's a Steinbeck novel, um, Dexter, the, the serial killer, both um, TV show, I'm proud to say I watch TV, um, uh, where it gives you this very conflicted feel towards uh, a killer that you're, are you supporting them or not? Um, and then uh, Battlestar Galactica, the, mm -hmm. the TV reboot. But the point is, that was, our, that was the orig origin of the character kind of influencing on us. When we met with military folks, they were firmly convinced we'd got the idea from this one particular Iraqi insurgent that they'd come across who basically was, was this. It turned out was a killer who was just taking advantage of the context of war, wasn't in it for the politics. They were convinced we'd gotten it from the real world when it had been the fiction that it led. I mean, you know, the, the, the works that we're talking about are often uh, books, uh, there's also TV series and films that really upend your expectations and assumptions. And I think that's something that is very appealing to artists. We had uh, Dave Anthony, who directed some of the Call of Duty Black Ops ga video games here at the council a while back. And he had made this point that he loved being challenged when somebody said, no, you can't do that. You can't say that. You can't think that. And he, that just 
increased his resolve to figure out a way to explore that in the creative world. And I think that's certainly true, whether it's the role the defense industrial uh, base will play in wartime, you know, whether our most uh, prized and expensive weapon systems deliver at the very moment we need them most, or whether they are perhaps our biggest Achilles heel. And the notion of almost what's a hero in a, in a 21st century war may be fundamentally different than, than what we've come to understand and expect. And so I think you know, encouraging people and thinking about not only what they read like Ghostly Today, but, but other uh, works, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, is looking and seeking out titles and writers that really explore that you know, upending a world in, of, uh, of status quo and assumptions. That's great. Um, tell, talk to us a bit about how you use technology, often technology that's actually being developed to project how it's going to change um, the future of warfare and be used in warfare. And I know in a previous conversation you talked about how surprised, sort of like uh, Peter's example about the opening vignette of the book, um, how some of it's actually coming out sooner than expected. I'll take the lead on that. So the, the rule of the book was um, no technology powered by teenage wizard hormones, uh, dragon's blood, or no clean. dolphins with lasers on yeah, the yeah, no, every single technology. In Which the would book. work, but yeah, um, uh, every single technology in the book had to be drawn from the real world. Had to already be at research and development or prototype stage, if not operational, and um, where you could play with it would be, well, what is the next manifestation of it? Or more importantly, how might it be used in a way contrary to your assumptions? And contrary to your assumptions might be um, the way it's, uh, um, you may not assume the other side is gonna do it back at you. Um, so one of our influences uh, has been um, the Snowden files, which have revealed we've done a lot of very interesting, um, cool things that we're actually vulnerable to, and they're now out in the wild. Um, one of the uh, more, you know, we've had a lot of really fun, um, important, impactful experiences from talking to leaders about the book. And one of the odder ones for me was um, meeting with a group of intelligence uh, officers and explaining that our novel reveals how the headquarters building that we were standing in could be hacked. Um, fortunately, like with everything in, in intelligence discussion today, we could blame that combination of um, NSA and Edward Snowden, whichever one you wanted to identify worse. Um, but the point is that that's the technology, is that it can be used either by the other side against you, or that it might be used in ways that you don't think are allowed or possible. So, you know, this, the historic illustration of this, to go back to that um, Arthur Conan Doyle, um, uh, work danger that comes out in 1914. It wasn't just that oh submarines could be useful against a battle fleet. It was also um, he writes about how they could be used to carry out a blockade against civilian shipping, and the Admiralty said no 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 Navy would would ever do this, and actually even says that um, if if a captain used their submarine to attack civilian shipping in this way, they would be shot by their own Navy. It was considered, you know, just a, a, you wouldn't operate that way. Of course, World War I starts a couple months later, and that very way it's used um, uh, almost uh, causes Great Britain to lose the war. It also um, may be not how the other side might use the technology. It might be how you use the technology um, in ways you don't contemplate now, either operational or, frankly, legal or ethical. Um, so there's been a uh, massive debate about unmanned systems, robotics, what's allowed, what's not. We constantly talk about it within the context of today's wars, which are everything from um, you know, discretionary to deliberative to um, individual targeting 
What might it be like in a different kind of war, a large-scale war? What might it be like in a situation where we're losing? What might it be like in other domains? And to go back to that Arthur Conan Doyle um, example with submarines, the use of submarines in unrestricted warfare was considered so horrible. It's the reason why the United States joins World War I. Move the dial forward to December 7th, 1941. It took us five hours to change our mind on that and to order unrestricted submarine warfare against the Japanese, basically because we were in a different kind of war, we were losing, and we were pissed off. And the point is, again, you know, to play with the um, not just what might be the technology, but how might the technology be used in different settings and contexts. I mean, there's a way, something that was always at the back of my mind was, was the way uh, an adversary would exploit vulnerabilities in the things you most want to come true or are going to rely on. So in a sense, the book is a red team exercise that we ran really against each other in a way and that allowed us to you know, think about, um, not from our US perspective, but a Chinese or a Russian perspective, what would be the ways that we would, you know, conduct this 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 war with the idea of, you know, really changing the the international system and the order. And there's a strategic element to the book that's sort of at a higher level that you can uh, talk about as well. And that, you know, if if the uh, military ambition is connected to a a fundamental reordering in the future of the way the world, you know, pivots around U.S.-led systems, you know, force force may be part of that, and we hope it won't be. But that's very much part of that, and the technologies that are enabling that, uh, you know, very much are part of that frontline that frontline capability, and that are so key to surprise, uh, because surprise has value in a in a in an era of uh, almost ubiquitous information and, and something that we're accustomed to. And then if you can flip that switch and turn that into denial or darkness, it's a fascinating thing to explore. And one of the things that made the book really really interesting to write. And and, and again, back to your question of influences. It also, it reflects everything from, you know, you used it, it's like wargaming. It reflected a series of war games that um, I helped to organize, you participated in, and actually uh, the Pentagon officials were here, many of them participated in, it, looking at what might be the next generation of technology, but more importantly, how might it be used, um, including civilian off-the-shelf technology that, that is in the hands of all sides. But one of the other, you know, I would argue, um, utilities of, of fiction is to put a finger on, um, I jokingly call it the, the fingers cross um, strategy that we have with a lot of our technology today, where, um, look, we, we, we know this in our world, um, and yet we plow forward with it. You know, we are, um, August with his journalist hat, uh, covered the story of how, you know, um, our ma major upcoming warplane, its program has been hacked at least three different times. Its microchips are made by, a, a, a vast amount of its microchips are made by the adversary that it is being designed to fight against. Um, to, we have, uh, to the cyber warfare side, the, the uh, Pentagon's own weapons tester uh, did a study of every single um, US, major US weapons program and found, in their words, significant vulnerabilities. That's what they found, let alone what they didn't find. Um, to we are in the midst of buying a warship that the Navy's own tester says would, quote, not be survivable in an actual battle. 
to we're buying. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, and I call this the uh, we we've we have a series of uh, Navy cruisers we've bought that won't be equipped with certain kinds of missiles de designed to defend themselves. Um, in the air, tankers that aren't designed with the basic defensive measures. And so we we explore the what if of this fingers crossed. You know, okay, you're in a warship that's not designed to be survivable in a battle. To be what's a warship. It, what's it What's it like to be a captain of that warship? Um, and, and that's the utility is that it's kind of taking these questions that we sometimes uh, too often accept in this world as if this is, this is okay, and going, okay, let's press that a little bit harder. Um, Mark and Kathleen, uh, what technologies and concepts of operation, concepts of operation did you see in the book that you think um, the US is uh, least prepared to deal with? Um, from the Navy side, I would say I, I, the obvious one I think would be uh, would be the cyber piece. I think that, um, admittedly, I'm you know I'm driving an airplane that was designed, no kidding, in 1959, and I think first serviced in 1964, and um, you know I mean it was made by the good old Grumman Ironworks team there in. Do those still come with ashtrays in them? Uh, they do actually. Yeah. Yes, they do. But we have to take them out. We're not allowed to smoke and play. Um, Unfortunately, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, no, it's so. So for those of us who are still, uh, you know, cyber, what are you, immigrants, if you want to call it that, who are who are new to this environment, who understand it but don't really understand it, it's a challenge. Um, I think for the next generation, it'll be easier. You know, for obvious reasons. I mean, again, you know, the 19-year-olds that are coming into the service, they're way smarter on uh, how to defend themselves. And frankly, also how to exploit it. So there's kind of a it's kind of a double-edged sword. But um, I think that that is going to be the big the big field there. And of course, frankly, you know, no one's died from cyber, and so there is a certain acknowledgement of the concern and the threat that it has to our weapon systems and to the ships and the airplanes and the submarines and that. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, it's just ones and zeros. But when those attacks start actually affecting like life support systems on a submarine or the flight controls on a you know, F-35 or something like that, uh, uncommanded ejection or something like that, then I think the years are certainly going to perk up much higher, uh, much faster, uh, when all of a sudden physical um, impacts to what are the ones and zeros happening uh, start occurring. Well, and for me, I mean, I think one of the, the, the big takeaways that you've actually sort of underscored in this discussion is the importance of human innovation and, and the importance of making sure that we're not so <laughs> Uh, technologically dependent, uh, that we have the the leaders, we've got the the soldiers, the the airmen, that you know, the the sailors who are able to innovate in um, in conditions of uncertainty and technological vulnerability. But I'd also just underscore one of the points that you were making early about you know how you went through and the footnotes you used and and the research that was. Um, that you did to put this work together. And it, I think it's it's important to recognize that that is one of the big challenges for fiction writers in this genre, right? You need to write something that feels authentic, that's not, that, um, that, that resonates to such a broad audience that, um, Therefore, you know, a fiction writer in this genre has to be very, very rigorous. And I think that's something that uh, we need to pay attention to. Um, have you guys been approached by any young up and coming writers that were sort of inspired uh, by what you've done to, to write more about what future warfare might look like yet? I mean, that's really our hope with the book. It's the hope with the larger Art of Future Warfare project that there is that, that moment that someone in 30 years will look back on and say, when I read Ghostly, 
and it came out in July, and I should have been out watching fireworks, but I was reading this book on the 4th. That, that's, that's the best you know, thing I could possibly hear. And so we're really trying to be supportive of not just up-and-coming writers, but you know, the established mid-career uh, as well who are in this town looking to use fiction in new ways. So it sounds like August just invited everyone out there in the online audience and the audience to email him. Yeah, reach out. About, uh, we're happy to, we're happy to help you. as we can. Peter, have you uh, heard anything? Oh yeah, well I mean it's it's also given a space for um, young officers to, to play with certain of the key themes, yep. um, scenarios, and even again the you know we're thinking about the utility of nonfiction and fiction, and we were having this conversation. Um, it's it's great to compare the kind of conversations you have up in New York versus down in D.C. We did our New York launch last week, and um, one of the the powerful things that was said in the context of kind of a, a literary discussion was that you can um, in fiction say more with a single sentence. Mm -hmm. And a good illustration, um, sometimes it might be a technology. There is a, um, almost a, a throw, I don't want to reveal it, but a throwaway line about how um, a certain policy that's developed um, on how to use a, a technology in this future that basically um, <coughs> a, a military service is reacting to and saying, well, why can't we do that now? And, and it's not a over. It's just basically it's a it's a throwaway line to more important um, even discussions of uh, social issues. So um, one of the uh, lines in the book that a lot of people within the military have commented on, and again, it's 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 set in the not too distant future, is two Navy officers having a, a conversation about an upcoming shore leave, and one of them essentially asks if the other guy's husband is coming, and it's it's basically you know without stating it, revealing that you have a Navy captain who's homosexual and married, and they carry on with the conversation, and it's not it's not a big deal. It's mm -hmm. our way of basically exploring something that I think is real, that um, the culture has, has already changed, and the military has changed, and it's sort of moved on from the debates of don't ask, don't tell, that so consumed this town. And um, it's basically everyone uh, has, uh, at least within the military readers, have reacted in a generally you know, a positive way. But the point is that it's a, it's a a single line in a conversation that points to how we need to move on from the culture wars. And but again, you know, that's something that I've written thousands of words on in my think tank hat, and yet we're able to cover it in a single sentence. Kathleen, I don't know if you're even allowed to talk about this, but I wanted to know if you'd tell the audience a bit about your budding creative writing career. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what where those things stand right now. Uh, well, um, actually, uh, you know. Um, as part of standing up this Art of War column, I've actually decided to put my money where my mouth is and, and write a work of fiction about what it's like to be a woman in the Pentagon. Um, wh what, what are the dynamics that you experience? How, how, does, you know, how, how do you operate within a bureaucracy that is essentially you know, um, very, very stovepiped and in, by many accounts quite dysfunctional? So in, in doing that. You, um, that's not your take, just by many accounts, right? By many <laughs> accounts. Well, I am a serious analyst. <laughs> Um, so it's, and as a part of that process, again, you, 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 you go through the different dynamics of, um, you know, what, what does a character experience as they 
as they enter the building or as they go through these different scenarios? How, how do people react? What are the third and fourth order consequences? How, how does one, um, you know, one memo end up having a downstream effect that might you know, imp you know, cause a war down you know, in Afghanistan? Those sorts of questions that you can really tease out in a way that it's hard to write in a policy memo or in a, in a think tank report. Uh, but uh, to your question, I, I was talking with a colleague of mine in the Pentagon um, who looked at Ghost Fleet and was really quite inspired. Uh, she's a woman who uh, is a poet, actually. She's, um, she, she's been writing poetry for years, but she's also a national security analyst. And she's always thought that she couldn't be a poet because she had to be a national security analyst. And, and the fact that there's this example out there, that you can actually do both. You can be a national security analyst and you can be an artist. And that's a really good thing. I think it's a wonderful contribution. There's something else too that I think we are not to cut Mark off, but but there there is a moment in Washington where there are more and more avenues to to engage in this creative way. You know, again, there's the project here, the Take Point, the Take Point Initiative at the Council is also running a twenty thousand dollar prize for veteran storytelling that's ongoing right now. So you know, there are more and more opportunities to do meaningful work in a creative space that are as accessible as ever. And I think you are seeing more, you know, uh, the Military Writers Guild, the Deaf uh, Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, that really are exploring and validating writing as a tool, uh, good writing particularly, as a tool to change <laughs> minds, to open them, and to work towards some of the solutions that conventional approaches just aren't getting to. Great. Uh, Mark, do you have anything to add before we open it up for questions? Nope. Great. Well, let's, let's do some Q&A. And if you could please introduce yourself and ask your question in the form of a question. I'm Harlan Ullman, and uh, I look forward to reading your book. It uh, sounds quite interesting. Uh, an observation and a question. Uh, when you get a chance, and I don't expect you to respond now, you might just compare what you've done to World War II, because in many ways the same parallels, cyber, you had Bletchley Park, purple, you had Enigma, technology, the Germans were building a 5,000-mile gun, um, nuclear weapons. Uh, you had everything from counterinsurgency in Burma to so forth and so on. And it might be interesting to compare and contrast to say what the differences are. What you would make with that, I'm not sure, but I think it would be interesting. My question is this. If you had a half an hour with Joe Dunford, and maybe you will, based on what you've done in this book, what would you tell him that you think he needs to know? I mean, I can start that off. I mean, I think the, that point I made about assumptions and really being courageous and upending them and taking that in a, in a logical direction, but also a creative direction, is, is just an essential thing. I would say um, I think you'll definitely enjoy the book then because uh, I'm a World War II history buff. And one of the things that's interesting, again, about the, you know, we've talked about the, um, the power of the written word, but also it's interesting, and you asked about influences, I always find it interesting what are in people's offices, whether they're in the, the Pentagon or um, fiction writers of like, what are the totems that they surround themselves with and what do those symbols mean and say about themselves or at least how they view themselves. And um, you know, so this book for me, one of the totems in, in um, my office is a 1939 Jane's um, fighting ships. It was given to my uh, grandfather by the Royal Navy. And it it's basically the last of these trying to document what people thought the navies of the world were like before World War II actually began. 
So it's got you know both accurate information on certain things, and then it's utterly inaccurate about like German and, and Japanese aircraft carriers. But the point is, um, I think when you read the book, you'll see there's influences where there are certain uh, battles that a, a reader in the know will go, hold it, that's a little bit like a modern day version of a Midway or a Lady Gulf, but maybe it's the, the sides are flipped, the script is flipped. Um, you mentioned um, the field manual and counterinsurgency. One of the storylines explores uh, a counterinsurgency, but flips the script and plays with um, what are the lessons that we have learned and difficulties along the way. Um, and it's basically kind of engaging in that debate that we've had in DC on everything from the balance between hearts and minds to uh, you know high value target uh, leadership takeout. And it, but it's doing it in a fictional future way. Um, what would we what would we say? Um, you know, we've begun to have these kind of opportunities, and I think you know I would echo what August said, and it's also a, in particular pointing to. I would frame it this way: our assumptions about the way the world is today are not even accurate, let alone where we think the world is headed, and that's true whether it's the way we conceive of certain technologies, certain types of warfare to um, ourselves, to um, China. Uh, you know, we, we have a discussion around communist China, which uh, has produced more billionaires than any other nation in the last couple of years, I think over 300, and is now having massive stock market issues to, um, you know, just like Chairman Mao uh, projected, right? <laughs> um, and I mean, that's, that's a, a, but the point is that we have a lot of assumptions around the world as it is today, let alone tomorrow, that need to be challenged. And the utility of the fiction is you can explore that, but oh, you don't think that's real? Here's where the person said it in the real world. Or you don't think that technology exists? Here's a video of it working. Back there. Hi, Rob Levinson, uh, Bloomberg Government. Uh, you mentioned the national military strategy, and one of the things that, you know, the biggest difference between this one and the previous one, which I think was 2011, is, you know, some might characterize it as we're going to get back to the kind of wars we want to fight. State-on-state -state warfare is now at the top of the list, and, you know, violent extremists is now down the list of the priorities. And I want you guys are talking about the big kinds of, you know, wars that we like to fight and things like that. You know, we've kind of seen this movie before, post-Vietnam, we said that was a bad experience, let's go back to conventional warfare. Now we've had real bad experiences in Afghanistan, Iraq, people want to think about state on state. Is there a fear there that, you know, we're gravitating back to that same mold of let's worry about fighting the big states and this messy ISIS kind of stuff and yucky stuff we did in Afghanistan, Iraq, we just don't want to do that anymore. There's one, there's one thing in that, in that document, though, that's really important is there's a, like a Venn diagram overlay between state conflict and then you know, non-state conflict. In the middle is what they call hybrid warfare. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that could actually be pushed further into the state box uh, than it is in that, that overlapping section. But I think that's very much what we explore in the book, is that you know, there are these elements that are being drawn from disparate uh, you know, ways of, of waging war that may not fit as neatly into the boxes that we want. I'm not sure that the, the, the war we want is maybe the right way to describe it, because what we uh, envision and, and as they allude in that strategy document, you know, the kind of catastrophic aspect of this, both at a, at a strategic, economic, political, social, human, uh, is, is evident. And that's not something they, they are, they're going to have to spend more time kind of articulating that. I would just say it was incredibly difficult to get um, both the U.S. military to release a strategy document that described uh, the risk of interstate war as growing 
and the Chinese to issue a new national security law that talked about the need to defend themselves in space, cyber, et cetera, to all do that to coincide with the release of the book. It was, it was a lot like the difficulty of getting that, that Navy pilot to go right near that Chinese military facility. I mean, it's been you know, really challenging getting the geopolitics of it right to help our marketing. Um, I, I, I say that with a, you know, a joke, but the point is you know, books, um, as opposed to uh, think tank memos and, and mm -hmm. Pentagon memos, they take years to create. Um, we set out on this journey, uh, well, you know, roughly we could say kind of three and a half, yeah. four years ago. And if you, you know, remember that context, um, that was, you know, uh, all Middle East focus. Um, New York Times had an article that uh, essentially argued that the threat of interstate warfare was done, um, said it had gone out of style. And uh, that was a similar kind of, if you look at the fiction side of, of, it, of the thrillers, it was all, you know, terrorism thrillers. And our argument back then was that no, there were certain things in the long term that were in play. What's happened in reality is they've accelerated, you know, whether it's, it's Russian land grabs in the Ukraine to what's played out in the South China Sea to, you know, both the U.S. and the Chinese military have released recent um, documents that backstop the very real arms race that they're engaged in. So they're there. The challenge, um, as you put it, is the way we, we, we frame it. So there are some parts of um, the military that still want to focus on um, these wars of uh, the, the small-scale uh, insurgency and the like. And um, you know, there's a large inter-service debate around that. But then the other is when we frame these conflicts, we frame them in ways that always work out for us. Mm -hmm. And when I say us, that's both sides. Um, the verbiage, the, the words that are used to describe the wars that they envision in both US and Chinese military doctrine are often things like that it will be short. Sharp is another one. It will be, sh and by short and sharp, um, that means temporally constrained. It will also, um, typically they frame it as geographically contained. You know, so only in the, the south, in, in the Straits of Taiwan or in the Baltics. And what we explore in the book um, is when you take these plans together, cross them, and you take the different technologies that are out there, it's unlikely that it will play out that way. Um, you know, a good illustration would be when you start playing in cyberspace and space, those inherently don't respect borders the idea that it will be geographically contained, well, actually, they'll reach into each other's homelands in a way that we haven't seen, going back to the prior question about World War II. And so, again, um, you know, it's the be careful for what you want. And, and I worry about this both in terms of the battle plans, but also political leader and even public mentality. Um, there was a uh, poll taken um, by the um, Perth U.S. Center of um, Chinese citizens and found that 74% um, of them think that they would um, easily beat the U.S. in, in a war. Uh, you would find probably similar polling among um, U.S. That's a dangerous discourse. Or um, you, there's a phrasing called peace disease which is something that um, Chinese military officers have started to describe themselves as suffering from, which is lamenting that they've never served in combat. These are not good trends to have in place. Um, and so that's when we, you know, what we want, the big war that we want. No, it's the fact that the unthinkable has become thinkable that gives us fodder for fiction, but again, can serve as a warning. Kathleen, Mark? Okay. Oh, I mean, I, uh, to your point, 
I think there's, there is a growing recognition that hybrid warfare in particular, or whatever, a gray zone, amorphous warfare, is, is something that we're going to be dealing with uh, in the future. Um, and you know, whether or not we, you know, we're, we're thinking about that strategically. I'm not sure that we've thought about it um, in terms of what that means for our force structure, what that means in terms of our budgets, how we're structured to deal with these kinds of contingencies. I think there's a lot more work to do. And that's the beauty of a book like Ghost Fleet, right? You can start thinking through, what, what does this actually mean? What would this actually look like? How, how, how would these things play out? What are the decisions that, and trade-offs we need to make now that would hopefully avert the scenarios that they, they lay out? Yes, sir, and I, I would finish by saying, um, and this is just my personal opinion, I'm not speaking on behalf of the chairman or DOD, but, um, you know, is this a pendulum swing too much from one to the other? You could make that argument, I suppose. I do like the Venn diagram. I think it says a lot that the chairman and his staff who, who generate that document, which actually, like a piece of fiction, by the way, does take more than, like, six months. It takes a while to crank, crank one of those out. Um, that they acknowledge it and that it's becoming a bigger piece of the hybrid um, thing. Now, as a military guy, I will turn it back to whoever in this room is policymakers or former policymakers and say that, again, national military strategy is only a reflection of the bigger one, right? The national defense strategy and, of course, the national you know, security strategy. So it's up to the policymakers also to dictate to the military what it is you want us to focus on. We should provide opportunities. We should provide cost-benefit analysis and all that kind of stuff. Got it. But at the same time, if there's a concern about pendulum swinging from insurgency to state on state and forgetting about this, that's a reflection of something else that may be going on as well. And frankly, again, as a strategist, likely so, when you've got Ukraine, you've got the South, the South China Sea thing and the reclamation projects that are going on there, that, that's a big deal. Um, and no one knows, and what's interesting to watch uh, from here, you know, in the confines of the Beltway, is everybody just kind of like hitting the pause button going, well, now what do we do about this? You know, we can kind of complain about it, but it doesn't seem to be stopping anything. Um, and so as we see the political decisions made to maybe swing that pendulum over here a little bit more, then the national military strategy is going to follow that. Uh, let's take two questions at a time, first in the back, and then John. Thank you. I'm Steve Grundman. I'm the Lund Fellow here at the Council. I think a, a particularly imaginative part of your book that may not get as much attention as I think it should is your reconception of these, these things we're calling America and China. Um, I think a, a whole important predicate uh, to how these concepts, America and China, come into conflict is that they're different. They're different politically, they're, they're different structurally um, in the moment when they come to conflict than they are today. And I think that adds a lot of plausibility to um, the, the whole premise of, of, uh, of the thing. And I don't think it would give too much away for you just to talk a little bit about that. It would also substantiate the point that was made that in this book, uh, perhaps by contrast with Tom Clancy's, you, 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 know, you create a strategic and political foundation uh, for, for the, the, the fun, techno-thrilling stuff that you write about as well. So I, I'd ask if you just give us a little taste of, of how America is different when this starts and how China, as, or more importantly, how this thing we're calling China, but which really isn't, uh, as I understood the book, uh, what, we, what we think of as China today. And uh, John, before we go to the answer. I'll just use my mic oh, You got a mic right there. Um, so you guys were talking about, oh, I'm John Casello from DGI. Um, you guys were talking about assumptions, and uh, it seems like there's two central assumptions that are just widely uh, 
I presumed right now. And that's uh, modern militaries have a developmental track that, uh, that there's a developmental track for militaries that's modeled on how the United States has developed as a military uh, with uh, infrastructure in space, overseas bases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, with the whole third offset initiative, obviously um, there's a call for, uh, to, to reorient. Um, but is that model, is that track, as uh, you have more developing nations reach economic and technological parity, is that model um, viable? I mean, is, is there another way? And as a secondary to that, the other assumption is that, um, that the current military structure that we have with four services, uh, jointness being central, um, is the assumed uh, ideal model for waging war. Um, and the Chinese obviously have a much more regionally focused one. But is there innovation or different modes of thinking structurally and organizationally and how we man, train, and equip as well as conduct operations um, that's not technologically centric? I'll start with a response, but, but first by acknowledging uh, our questioners. Uh, Steve Grunman is the patron, really, of the Art of Future Warfare project, and that should be acknowledged for his support of these sorts of things that we've been able to pull off today. And, and John Costello has written a phenomenal uh, serial short story series at War on the Rocks called The Fall of Heaven, Envisioning a Future Conflict with China that is superb, and I highly recommend those of you in the room and also in the online audience read it. Uh, but Steve's question, I'll start with China. I mean, one of the really interesting, I'm just fascinated by, by the, the direction the country is going, and, and really, again, going back to those assumptions to upend about the party's ability to endure. And that thinking about the needs that a more professionalized and growing military like, like uh, the PLA uh, will become when it's spending perhaps on uh, the country spending on perhaps at parity levels with the U.S. you know in two decades or less when you have uh, capabilities that they don't possess today you know in the 90s you know China was spending like 10 billion a year on its military it spends 150 officially or so I think and then maybe more unofficially so that's going to require fundamental uh, changes in the political relationship between those that govern China and not now stability and efficiency being very important of course to the larger uh, kind of project of the, that land mass and the billion plus people that live there. To me, speaks to uh, an emergence of another form of government. And I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but, but I think that's something that that synthetic vision that I have and, and Pete and I have explored in this, you know, is, is, is really the China of the future. And to, to John's point, you know, the, the actors that we assume, and this goes to both the third offset but also organization, the actors we assume to be the most decisive ones, particularly in the context of a great power war, a hybrid great power conflict, you know, may not be those that are products of bureaucracies that cannot keep up and keep pace with, with the change and the demands of sort of national priorities. You know, how do you respond to a surprise attack? Uh, instead, I think we're looking in the book at what is the role of Silicon Valley in wartime, where there is an immense capital, intellectual and, and financial, that can be employed instantaneously, because that's how they operate in their day-to-day -day lives. That's their metabolic state. Or the infrastructure that we count on in the commercial world totally take for granted. And something Max Brooks in World War Z uh, very ably explores as well when that all fails. Uh, but the infrastructure in this country that a major retailer like Walmart offers, that it has a wartime role. Uh, and that when you overlay things like additive manufacturing, you're going to see uh, aspects to this that you just don't really think about in a conventional context today. So third offset. I think needs to be almost a mechanism or framework to look at those questions as much as is saying we need to buy and equip rail guns on, on you know, ships above a certain tonnage or you know, we need to have dolphins with lasers on their heads. I would say a, a challenge we face in um, the policy community 
is that we tend to, it's the Goldilocks problem. We tend to frame everything as these two ends of the, of the poles. You know, it's, it's always a, a debate between, um, you know, so the technology illustration would be, you know, it's the RMA, the fog of war has been lifted to, oh, no, technology doesn't matter, when the reality it's something in the middle. It's the same thing when we look at um, the politics of other countries both today and tomorrow. And, uh, you know, a, a couple months ago there, there emerged this debate within uh, the community of people that, that watch China, so to speak, but it reflects a debate within China itself. And the way it's framed is either one of the Communist Party is here today and it will stay that way forever, or the other is no, China is on, the Communist Party is on its last legs, but then it immediately connects it to a discussion of democracy as if these are the only two pathways that are possible for the future. And instead, we play with the idea of um, what does it mean moving forward to have a China that has um, produced uh, so many successful, confident, you, you, you said regional, actually global outlook, both in business, but also now a more professional military with a more global outlook. We've seen this again reflect in the, um, the recent uh, Chinese um, uh, military strategy, the, the white paper that you know, takes words like active defense that, that you know, date back 70 years, but redefines them from being about thinking about it as kind of a ground-based territorial, the invader will come in and we'll chew them up like happened in World War II, to know looking outward um, beyond the, the uh, fixed land borders to things like South China Sea, to cyberspace, to you know, the national security law even talked about Antarctica in it. Um, the point which we're getting at is that there's maybe a different future that reflects this more successful more global, more professional China. And um, that's what we play with in the book. Again, you know, the difference of nonfiction is you're utterly delighted to, to explain the conclusion of your book. And fiction, you know, you've got to say spoiler alert. Um, to your question, again, this hits the idea of the, there's a narrative of the third offset. And that narrative links back to the prior offsets and what we thought they did during the Cold War, which sometimes actually doesn't match reality. Um, we've got, we were having a conversation beforehand that reflects certain things in the counterinsurgency debate about, you know, there's a lot of competing narratives of what happened in the surge, mm -hmm. some which do or don't relate to reality. But the point is, there's a narrative that essentially is sort of saying, well, we can do this again. We can spend a lot on technology and we'll stay a generation ahead of this new kind of adversary and we'll cost impose on them. But there's two um, fundamental differences. One, and, and sitting behind you as, as a collaborator on the popular science project that I'm part of, where we've been documenting all the incredible technologic developments that China is doing on their own. Everything from they've done more hypersonics weapons tests to supercomputers to whatnot. So it's not just a story of them stealing intellectual property and remaking it. They're doing cutting edge on their own. The second difference is the Silicon Valley side that there is a lot more interesting, important, game-changing things happening on the civilian sector that the Pentagon is the one that's struggling to keep pace with. That's very different than the last Cold War, and that's accessible to all the others out there. Um, we've seen this hits back to a, a policy issue. Ah, but you know, we just, we had the first Secretary of Defense go to Silicon Valley, and I believe it was 20 years give a speech there, oh, we're opening up an office, where, as they put it, um, we're, we're wooing Silicon Valley. We play with the idea of, hey, guess what? In reality, Silicon Valley operates differently than the Beltway. It also, in a post-Snowden world, has different attitudes towards the US government. 
so things may not play out the way we hope, both in the offset kind of technology buy, but also in the wooing of a Silicon Valley. Definitely. Well, and just to um, dovetail on that point, you know, we're, we're living in an era where most of our strategic assumptions are being challenged, right? And, and, and we really need to think through what that means. A, a couple of years ago, we really assumed that Russia was going to be a partner in a stable Europe. That assumption is no longer valid, I don't think. So you know, we need to think about not just the technological aspects of this, but also you know, our strategic fundamental assumptions about what the world is like, who these actors are that we're operating with, and, and how these things are going to play out in the future. Yeah, and John, to finally finish your question about uh, you know, is this an outdated model, the four services, mm -hmm. man training, equipped, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we could go on and on. I could, I, we could sit down for an hour talking about why you know, naval air is you know, better than Air Force air, which of course it is. Sorry to all my Air Force brothers in the room. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, we each have our own unique purposes of the four services, right? And the Marines and all that kind of stuff. But with that being said, um, what is happening on the man train equip side is we're all being driven, the, the bureaucracy is being bogged down because we're not being given the room and the flexibility to make decisions, uh, primarily because of budget, and, and I get it, and sequestration, CNO, Secretary Mabus, the Commandant have all been very vocal about how sequestration is really harming the Naval Service because I can only speak for the Naval Service um, from that perspective. Um, and if we don't have that flexibility, then it becomes kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we need to have room to take risks in procurement and acquisition and development and DARPA and, and all these wonderful things that are out there, and we don't have that room. So what do we do? We wind up investing in an aircraft that is way, way over budget because this is what we were told to. By the way, 46, uh, 46 states create parts for the F-35. So this isn't just a military problem as far as our structure, which I agree with you, John. Like We could talk about whether you could maybe tweak things here or there. It's also the function of this is what we've been given, and this is, this, this is the box we've been put in, and we've been put in a pretty strict box. Um, and it's very difficult for us to break out without the money and, the, and more importantly, the room and the, the um, oversight uh, and the blessing from leadership to go out and do great things and occasionally fail in the name of finding something better. Uh, I'm going to take three questions at once. I'm going to ask that you keep them pretty short, and then maybe we can keep the answer short, too, because we only have a few minutes left uh, right here. And then the, the gentleman in front, and then uh, this gentleman right here. Um, I'm Patty Morrissey. I work for the National Intelligence Manager for Military Issues. Um, we are hopefully going to be having a similar type exploration of future warfare this fall that I talked to Peter about last week. Um, I just want to pick up on the thread that the importance of per pervasive surveillance, uh, both for low-end and high-end type competitions, um, combined with this idea that the battles of the future are not just about territory. There are battles based on the narrative for ideological affiliation that, again, the technological tools that enable that to have global reach are really, really important. So it's almost like um, as we think through future warfare, it's like the convergence of what we would call low, in, low intensity conflict and high intensity conflict mm -hmm. end up kind of taking on the same set of characteristics, uh, but maybe to different degrees. So I'm just wrestling thinking out loud, but just kind of wanted to follow that thread. And you can just pass it to right here in front. 
Moshe Schwartz from the Congressional Research Service, just building up on that a theme of this is the stuff we've been given and acquisitions, which clearly is what I cover apparently. Um, <laughs> in working on this book, did you come up with any notions or thoughts on to the extent that these technologies need to be developed if our acquisition system is answering the call, is holding us back, is actually promoting the needs and helping more than it should? I'd just be really curious on your thoughts on that. Right, and right here. I'm Randall Doyle. I'm from Georgetown University. Um, I was talking to him beforehand, but I didn't get a chance to ask this question. About the Western Pacific and the use of U.S. aircraft carriers, and as you well know, the Chinese have made it very public that they have built a defense system and so forth to try to eliminate any kind of effectiveness in future encounters with the United States, Navy, particularly aircraft carriers. And with the military enhancement of Hainan Island and the building of airstrips and so forth in the Spratly Islands, and the vulnerability of U.S. aircraft carriers, which the Navy has acknowledged. Um, what is the viable future of aircraft carriers playing um, the traditional role they have been playing since World War II in the Western Pacific with the Chinese in vast enhancement of missile programs so forth to try to neutralize their presence in the Western Pacific? Because I think that will have a true effect on our relationships with Japan and, uh, and Australia and Singapore. And, so I think this is an issue quite often is not really talked about so much publicly, but uh, perhaps maybe the aircraft carrier might be going the way of the dreadnought, so to speak, before World War I, where, you know, in a sense, because of technology, um, it might not be the end all of all out for the Navy and so forth. Okay. Well, let's start with Mark, just to mix it up. We only have about four minutes left. Okay. Um, uh, again, this is, uh, off, this is not uh, the Navy's position. It's my personal opinion. Is, uh, I love the carrier. I always love the carrier. I look at a uh, fellow fighter pilot in the back there. Um, so I will uh, always sing the praises of the carrier. But you're correct. The, as you said, the Navy is public acknowledged it's a tough uh, environment to operate in. Um, it's enough to say that um, people aren't just sitting back at their desks at the Pentagon going, man, this sucks. And uh, I guess we've got to put that $11 billion machine back in there and tell the Ford to shut it down and all that kind of stuff. There are, there are things we are looking at. I, and unfortunately, that's all I'm going to say there. Uh, but there are things we are looking at, different ways you can look to employ, kind of getting, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and dovetail right back into the book, different ways of employing technology that maybe we hadn't considered. Um, the carrier still brings a lot to the fight. Uh, it depends on what kind of fight you want to have, and I'll just stop there. Kathleen? Uh, just, Patty, on your point, um, this, this emerging environment, you know, low tech, high tech, how is this all coming together? Um, Yes, we're, we're just dealing with an increasingly complicated world, and I would just add to that this question about priorities. You know, so so we've got this emerging um, these emerging conflicts. You know, we, it, it's it's increasingly difficult to grapple with. Okay, so what are the trade-offs that we need to make? How does how do you know do we prioritize these great power conflicts? Do we look at these low insert? How how do we do this? And again, I think that fiction lets us start thinking through these trade-offs in a in an unbound way. I'll try and hit them real quickly. So to, to your question on um, surveillance, uh, one of the, the plot lines in the book explores essentially kind of an urban insurgency where um, we see the overwhelming kind of uh, surveillance that we have today, everything from you know Gorgon stare, high altitude to DNA, DNA identification, all of which were technologies pioneered by the military that are moving over into law enforcement and a domestic setting. And it also plays with the idea of how through low tech means, 
you can still carry out what you want to do. So, um, and you're seeing the posters also relate to it, changes the way that those being watched feel. So it's a discourse of war, but it hits that. Second key issue you hit on was um, in technology and surveillance. We've grown used over the last 15 years to this sense of having all the data at our fingertips. The complaint from people in the military is that I'm being flooded. It's like a fire hose of data coming at me. Well, one of the alternative outcomes is the spigot's cut off. What is it like in that world where you don't have access to maybe all of the surveillance or GPS isn't working the way you plan? What, what does that mean? Um, acquisition question, uh, we specialize, um, I jokingly say it, but it's true, in buying the Pontiac Aztecs of war. Remember the Pontiac Aztec, you know, sports car in the front, minivan in the middle, SUV on the back. It was something that tried to be all things to all people. It turned out to be over-engineered, overpriced, over-promised. We can, in each of the services, identify its equivalent where there are things that are actually not all that good either for the low intensity nor as we explore for the high intensity. And that's a problem. Um, finally, the carrier question. Uh, the way um, I, I, I think there's two quick things here. One is I believe the carrier um, isn't going away completely, but it's also being redefined. And that's true whether you look at the USS America, which is an amphibious ship, except it's really a carrier, to mounting drones off of everything from destroyers to submarines. So we're going to have to redefine how we think about the carrier. The other um, last historic point to end on is to make sure that we don't think that we're embracing change when we're really not. So what is the equivalent today of that battleship captain saying, oh no, I'm totally on board with air power. I have a float plane on my battleship. Do you all hit your points real quickly here? Uh, I think it's important not to think about technologies as disparate or uh, as separate, but rather to what end are they used. And you know, if you can think about the basic purpose of, of a state-on-state -state war, to get your adversary to accept the conditions you're imposing on them immediately. And what, are, what is the suite of technologies you have at hand to do that and how they integrate with physical means, kinetic means? Moshi, to your point about the acquisition system, I mean, the, the ability to think through how will that acquisition system today work in wartime is a really pretty scary prospect because the demands that are going to be put on it in terms of production, in terms of integration with uh, technologies that are so far outside but so necessary, uh, is a liability. And to the question of the carriers, a really interesting one. Uh, I think about it in terms of narrative, too. You know, the, the air, U.S. aircraft carrier fleet is part of our power projection. It's part of the way the world views us. It's not going away for that regard, but to Pete's point, the capabilities and the effects you can, you know, create with that will certainly distribute throughout. It's like space with small satellites versus uh, CubeSats versus, like, the large billion-dollar-plus uh, you know, reconnaissance satellites the intelligence community uses. Some of the same things can be done with the same platform, but in different ways. And there'll be uses for either and both. But things like affordability and resilience, two traits that we could use more of, particularly in acquisition, I think will dominate. Great. Um, sorry for those that didn't get to your questions, but I'm sure the panelists will stick around for a few minutes afterwards. And thanks to the Atlantic Council and everyone who organized this. And there's a, uh, huh? Oh, uh, yeah. They buy the book outside. They'll sign it for you. Uh, it is a really fun read. I read it a while ago, and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you.